You're listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joining God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. We believe God in order to make disciples who make disciples. Believe that God has called us to be joined in Him in His pursuit of restoring lives. And that means a lot of different things. And we'll unpack that, I think, in some detail over the next three weeks and how that translates into our body here. But before we get into that, there's something else we need to just remind ourselves of as well. Um, and, and it kind of reminds me of this, this story. There was a woman who had tickets uh, to Super Bowl 45, and she was located on the 50-yard line. And for those who do not know, Super Bowl 45 was Green Bay Packers versus who? Apparently everybody doesn't know. Um, Pittsburgh Steelers. And so as she sits down, this man comes down to her from the nosebleed section and, and, and asks, uh, is anyone filling this seat? And she said, no, this seat next to me is empty. And the man said, well, this is incredible. Who in their right mind would have a ticket to the Super Bowl and not show up? Well, she said, this seat actually belongs to me. It belongs to my husband. I was supposed to come with him, but he passed away. This is the first Super Bowl that Green Bay has played in that we haven't seen together. The man said, I'm sorry. Sorry to hear that. That's terrible. He said, I bet sitting at the 50-yard line was something special, especially in 1966 and 67. And she said, yes, it was. So curiously, the man looked at her and he said, but, but couldn't you find someone else, a friend or a relative or even a neighbor to take this empty seat? The woman just looked down and she shook her head and she said, no, they're all at the funeral. That's for free. Yeah, nice, right? I never tell jokes like that, do I? Now I know why. If you're visiting, that normally doesn't happen. She was a fan, wasn't she? But she wasn't a fan of America's team. America's team, the Dallas Cowboys, the nickname given to the Dallas Cowboys in a 1978 highlight film where the narrator made the statement, and I repeat, they appear on television so often that their faces are as familiar to the public as presidents and movie stars. They are the Dallas Cowboys, America's team. America's team. Many, many different fans of America's team. When we were in Amarillo, Texas, at a 2,000-person church, uh, we... uh, we saw the response to America's team in full force. People would come on Sunday mornings with their Dallas Cowboy gear on. And they would not just come with their Dallas Cowboy gear, but they would come with the black face paint. As if, I don't know, it was just strange to see, especially when you're preaching. Uh, you don't know what to make of that. But that, I tell you, America's team, it's a real thing. There are people who are super fans of the Dallas Cowboys, and apparently there are tons of them no matter where you are. Raise your hand if you're a Dallas Cowboy fan in here. See, there's even two people in need of repentance. I mean, it's a, I mean two people who are Dallas Cowboy fans. And, but I got to tell you, December 22nd was a beautiful day for the Ligon household because it was on this day that Tim McMahon, who covers the Dallas Cowboys for ESPN Dallas, discovered that a new vote had been taken in America's public. And America had chosen a different team. The Dallas Cowboys, by vote, are not America's team. It is the Green Bay Packers. Now, I'm not a big Green Bay Packers fan. Raise your hand if you're a Green Bay Packers fan. All right, see more. See, there we go. The vote is, the vote is verified. I'm just not a Dallas Cowboy fan at all. So whoever becomes uh, America's team beside the Cowboys... 
is fine with me. But, but when you look at the numbers, it's pretty startling. While Green Bay would have more fans, Green Bay has won 13 Super Bowls, Chicago Bears 9, New York Giants 7, Pittsburgh Steelers 6, and the Dallas Cowboys only 5. And so you look at Dallas Cowboy fans and you look at Green Bay fans and you see they are very, very proper people. And you see that um, it makes sense that there are more fans because they've won more games and they sell more paraphernalia. And that's America's team now. It's Green Bay Packers. Being a fan of a team is a very unique thing. It has a way of changing kind of how you live your life. It really does if you're a really, really big fan. And then it depends on how long they win and how much they win, whether or not you remain a fan. And so I just wanted to be fair because we have talked about the Cowboys and the Packers. So I didn't want to, to leave out some of the teams that I know many of you are fans of. So I wanted to, to show a picture of a, of a Washington Redskins fan who you can tell is very happy about the season. And I want to show you a Baltimore Ravens fan who, uh, I don't understand that at all. Um, and then you've got, you know, the Pittsburgh Steelers fans. And you see, you see a common theme here? Yeah, this is appropriate in church, isn't it? You see, you see a common theme, uh, face paint. But then you've got, you know, the Denver Bronco fans, which I just want to say are normal people, which is who Allison and I like too. We like Denver. Um, just wanted to, they're, they're sort of T-bowing uh, a little bit there. Um, but... Being a fan is an interesting thing. Do you know the Bible has a story about fans? If you have your Bibles, turn to John chapter 6, if you will. This is going to be our text. We're going to camp out here today. John chapter 6. Now, we're going to read a lot of verses. We're going to start at verse 14. And then I'm going to skip to verse 22, and then we're going to read through the rest of the chapter. So if you don't have your Bibles, if you'll follow along with somebody, if you don't have your Bibles and you have no one next to you with one, if you'll just listen, it's a lot to take in. But I think for this story to be understood, you you can't just tell the story. You've got to hear the words of Jesus in detail. Verse 14, now what has happened here is Jesus has fed 5,000 people. Remember, he's fed 5,000 people with this miraculous work. And so... Look at verse 14. When the people saw the sign Jesus had done, they said, this really is the prophet who has come into the world. And therefore, when Jesus knew that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, because they were expecting a king, he withdrew again to the mountain by himself. I mean, really, in this story, it's kind of hard to deny that this this large crowd of that numbers 5,000 men, which means it was more than just 5,000 people, were all fed because they were hungry with just five loaves and two fish. Jesus multiplied it over and over again, used his disciples to actually hand it out. There's a lot of different great stories and great points in this particular story. But, but it's almost undeniable that the, the crowd saw what Jesus had done, and they saw it in such a way that, that they, were, they were surprised and knew that there was something different about Jesus, so much so that they wanted him maybe to even be the king, that he was the prophet that God had promised, and so now our king is here. So they saw the sign, they got it. They got it, right? They, they understood it, it seems. Verse 22, the next day the crowd that had stayed on the other side of the sea, it's the same crowd, knew there had been only one boat. And they also knew that Jesus had not boarded the boat with his disciples and that his disciples had gone off alone. So Jesus has left, the disciples have left, the crowd is there, they see it. They see some boats, verse 23. Some boats from Tiberias came near the place where they ate the bread after the Lord gave thanks. And when the crowd saw that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into the boats and went to Capernaum looking for Jesus. And he's gone. They want to go find him. This is, this is the king, right? This is the prophet that God promised. Let's go find him. 
Verse 25, when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, I assure you, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. So here's the difference between seeing and seeing. Verse 27, don't work for the food that perishes, but for the food that lasts for eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has a seal of approval on him. Verse 28, well, what can we do to perform the works of God, they asked. Verse 29, Jesus replied, this is the work of God that you believe in the one he has sent. What sign then are you going to perform that we may see and believe you, they asked. As if feeding 5,000 wasn't enough. Verse 31, they say, our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness just as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. And what Jesus said to him, I assure you, Moses didn't give you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the real bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And then they said, well, sir, give us this bread always. I mean, if that's true, if, if, he, if he's come and this bread of life gives life to the world, then give us that bread, Jesus. Verse 35, I am the bread of life, Jesus told them. No one who comes to me will ever be hungry, and no one who believes in me will ever be thirsty again. But as I told you, you've seen me, yet you do not believe. Everyone the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. Verse 39, this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose none of those he has given to me, but should raise them up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have eternal life, and I'll raise them up on the last day. Verse 41, therefore the Jews started complaining about him, because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They were saying, isn't this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he say now, I have come down from heaven? You see, that this is, this is strange. I mean, at first they're like, you're the king. Give us the bread. And now they're like, well, you're just the son of a carpenter. Verse 43, Jesus answered them, stop complaining among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent him draws me, draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has listened to and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. Verse 47, I assure you, anyone who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. It's like Jesus is repeating himself. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that anyone may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. The bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Well, put yourself in context. That's gross. Verse 52. At that, the Jews argued among themselves. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, I assure you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you do not have life in yourselves. Anyone who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day, because my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood lives in me and I in him. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. Feeding on Jesus, really? Verse 58, this is the bread that came down from heaven. It is not like the man of your fathers ate and they died. The one who eats this bread will live forever. He said these things while teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. Verse 60, therefore, 
given all this hard stuff, all this strange teaching, all this, if you eat of me, you'll really live stuff. If you drink my blood, you'll really live stuff. Therefore, when many of the disciples heard this, they said, this teaching is hard. Who can accept it? Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were complaining about this, asked them, does this offend you? 62. Then what if you were to observe the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? The Spirit is the one who gives life. The flesh doesn't help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. Not, I'm not saying literally eat me here, people. I'm, I'm giving you a deeper truth than that. But you're offended? But there are some of you who don't believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning those would not believe in the one who would betray him. I'm talking about Judas there. Verse 65, he said... This is why I told you that no one could come to me unless it's granted him by the Father. From that moment, many of his disciples turned back and no longer accompanied him. Therefore, Jesus said to the twelve, see, because Jesus' disciples weren't just the twelve. It was anybody who decided to follow him. You don't want to go away, do you? I can't imagine Jesus' response. I mean, this massive megachurch of people, right? And Jesus delivers this very hard teaching and this hard truth and basically eliminates all other things and says, I'm the way. Like, if you want real life, Jesus mentions life in this story 12 times. If you want life, 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 real life, what everyone in this room wants, what I want, what I want my kid to want, if you want life, meaningful, real, substantive life, Real life, like the kind of life you're created to live. If you want life, Jesus says, then, then, then you've, got to, you've got to eat and drink of me. You've got to feed on me. You've got to sit at the table of me. You've got to feast from me. Your hungers, your thirsts, your affections, your affinities, your energies, all need to come to me, he says. And, and some of his disciples say this, say, I'm offended. I'm offended that you would insult Moses and that you would insult the great Exodus story. I'm offended that you'd put yourself up there. You have offended me. This is, this is crazy. You don't know what you're talking about. Some are like, this is just too hard. This is not what I signed up for. I mean, I just wanted the bread and the love. I mean, he, he served a good meal. He did some really cool things. I mean, he made some people see and some, some people walk who couldn't. I, but I didn't sign up for this. I didn't sign up for this whole, like, you want all of me kind of thing. And so they'd say, I, I'm bailing. I'm leaving. And Jesus Jesus, I envision Jesus, I could be wrong, you got to read into the text a little bit. I envision Jesus, after watching the mass exodus take place, look at his disciples and say with a sense of, even though he knew, I mean, we're clear that Jesus knew all things, but yet he, he became man. I mean, he has a heart, God feels. And I imagine he looked at his 12 and he was like, you guys want to leave me too? Everybody else is bailing. I mean, they've been with us a while. They've traveled with us a while. Passover's about to happen. They've been on the journey with us. They, they've heard the teaching. You guys, I mean, you guys want to bail too? Simon Peter, verse 68, answered, Lord, who will we go to? I mean, you have the words of eternal life. We've come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. I mean, where else are we going to go? I don't think Peter was, you know, I mean, I don't think all the disciples were like, man, yeah, we're, we're, we're in this. I kind of think there was a sense of resignation. Because, I mean, it was hard to hear that. I kind of think, well, well, I mean, we've come to believe that you are who you say you are. Where else are we going to go? I'm not sure I want to end up upside down on a cross. 
I'm not sure I'd like to be boiled half alive and then sent to an island of isolation, which is what happened to John. I'm not sure I'd want to be cut up into millions of different pieces or shot to death by arrows or thrown off a cliff. But I mean, where else are we going to go? Come to believe and know that you really are who you say you are. You really are life. We believe it. Life isn't found anywhere else. Where are we going to go? This is a tragic story of fans and followers. Jesus is painting a vision as to what real life looks like, what it takes to experience real life. And that invitation that he extends to experience this real life in this story, and I think in Scripture throughout, is always going to be an invitation that at some point, at some time, maybe not in the altar calls, but at some point in some time is going to prove to separate the fans from the followers. See, fans, if you had to define it, a fan of Jesus could be defined as an enthusiastic admirer closer enough to Jesus to get the benefits, but not too close to require the sacrifice. I'm going to hang out with Jesus. I'm going to eat that good food. I'm going to see those good healings, maybe even get one myself. This Jesus is something. Got a t-shirt on about him. Listening to my Tomlin CD on the way out. Got my poster, No Life with Jesus right there. Got my bumper sticker that says, Forgiven. Drink out my coffee cup. You know, Romans 8, 28. Is anything wrong with that? But when Jesus starts asking me to, to give up something, and he starts asking me to lay down some affections, sacrifice something, I don't know about that. See, there are symptoms of a fan. And here is the tragedy. I need you to hear, hear this been wrecking me for the last while. See, one of the primary symptoms of a fan is that a fan thinks they're a follower, but prove over time to be fickle. A fan doesn't mind Jesus making minor adjustments in his or her life as long as Jesus doesn't want to renovate the whole thing. See, a fan of Jesus doesn't mind Jesus touching up the life as long as Jesus doesn't want to come and do, do an overhaul Turn it upside down. I don't know, something like asking them to let go of some particular political ideal or some particular value system or some particular tradition or some particular job or some particular way of life. Jesus start asking that, then he's encroaching. As long as Jesus doesn't start making too many demands of me and I can just go to church and get the benefits of the spiritual pep rally of worship and have my prayers answered when the plane are going down. But when everything's good and right in my life, as long as he didn't come in and try and ask me to give up some of that. When you look at this story, you see the difference between fans and followers. And sadly, when you look around at the lives of people in the church, you see fans and followers. There's a story of a father whose daughter had walked away from faith and approached the pastor for counsel and advice. During this long and painful conversation, the, the pastor discovered 
what he had heard all too many times before. See, the father and the mother had come to realize something about themselves. They had raised their daughter in the church, but not raised her in Christ. And the father admitted, we raised her in the church, but we didn't raise her in Jesus. It's important, I think it's important to look at this story and know the difference between a fan and follower. Like I say, it's been messing with me all week long and, and even a long time before that. So if you look at the text, and you look at verse 32 to 34, Jesus said to them, I assure you, Moses didn't give you the bread from heaven. My Father gives you the real bread from heaven, for the bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And then they say, Sir, give us this bread always. You find here that these very same people who talk the talk were not willing to walk the walk. What you discover is fans talk more than walk, and followers walk the talk. And Jesus said, it's obvious, by their fruits you're going to know who they are. You'll know whose they really are by the way they live their lives. I mean, in, in this story, you see fans, you see they're going to talk that talk, but you see followers in, in John 6, 68 through 69, where Simon Peter and those 12, they stick it in, they walk their talk. They say, we believe you and we're going to prove it. And they walked it. Look at verse 22 of chapter 6. The next day the crowd stayed on the other side of the scene, knew that they'd only had one boat, so they go and they find Jesus, Right? They follow him. Verse 25, when did, you, when did you, they found him here and said, when did you get here? Jesus said, you're looking for me because you saw the, but not because you saw the sign, but because you ate the loaves and are filled. See, they're following him because they were getting something. I think what we learn in this story is that fans, fans trust their leaders only when it benefits them. Followers trust Jesus as their leader all the time. These guys were not willing to trust Jesus completely unless it benefited them directly. But then when Jesus talks about some sort of sacrifice, when he talks about something that doesn't get interpreted as immediate benefit, they bail, but the followers stay. Followers trust Jesus as their leader all the time. Fans trust only when it benefits them. You look at verse 30. Verse 31. What sign then, Jesus, are you going to do so that we may see and believe you? What are you going to perform? He'd already done this sign. He'd already done this amazing thing. For some reason, they didn't see it. And I think one thing I learned from this is followers, followers want a vision for their life. But fans, fans just want a show. Fans just want a spiritual pepper. Jesus, you know, you did this thing. Now, what, what else are you going to do? You see that in Scripture all the time. They, they're amazed at what he did, and so they bring the, the sick and the lame to him to see a show. Not so that the sick and the lame can be healed, but just so that he can see a show. And I think what, what I see is sometimes fans, we, 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 want, we want the show. We want, we want to see God do amazing things in our lives. And, and I don't doubt that sincerity, but, but the reality is what separates the fan from a follower is not when God's going to do amazing things in my life, but when God's going to do something in my life that causes me to cost, that causes me to pay for something. And the reality of this text, the sad truth of this text, is, is that's the separation of a fan and a follower. The follower who even with resignation, not with super strong faith, but even with resignation and then tears in their eyes say, I don't know where else I'm going to go then because you're the one. I don't like it, but you're the one. You have eternal life, I believe and know that. The fans, they don't, they don't, they don't stay. See in verse 16, 61, you learn something else about a fan. And this is something that really wrecks me. 
on, on several levels. In 60, they say, Therefore, when many of his disciples heard this, they said, The teaching is hard. Who can accept it? Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were complaining about this, he asked, Does this offend you? Clearly it did. And in their offense, what did they do? They left. See, this teaching is offensive. It was offensive even to the twelve. But what you learn about a follower is that followers stick around even when they are offended and fan leaves when they're offended. And it makes sense. Because if you offend me, because you're speaking truth into my life, then there's a really good chance that there's too much pride in me to receive that love and that truth. And so I'm just going to be offended by you and you and I are going to have a relational problem now. And, and if I have the choice, I may just leave the church or Jesus altogether. And see, this makes sense. Because if Jesus really is who he says he is, and he really does what he says he'll do, and he really is life, then that life is really holding on to, despite the offense. There are times when I read Scripture, maybe it doesn't happen to you, but there are times when I read the Bible where God offends me. Where what he teaches tells me I'm not loving Allison the way I should. I'm not loving you the way I should. I'm not living the way I should. I'm not loving my son the way I should. And yeah, I'm reading the Bible, and there are times where it doesn't just give me the warm and fuzzies where I just assume close the thing and act like that dead verse didn't do, it didn't even exist. So an old mentor of mine, first mentor I ever had, Brother Denny, he's an elder in the first church I ever served, he used to call this a Passover verse. When you look at it, it offends you and you pass over it. And I've got a Bible full of Passover verses. I mean, I've sat across the table from people, including myself, and I'm going to talk about that in a minute, but people who, who are neck deep in sin know they're rebelling against God, know they're disobedient against God, and get offended by the truth of the fact that God is saying, I didn't create you to live that way. And they don't want to hear it. When I was in high school and I was in college and I was with all these girls and the preacher would talk about sexual immorality, I would sink into my chair. And I didn't want to hear it. And I know why. Because when you look at my life, I was a fan of Jesus. I wasn't a follower. It's clear by the fruit of the way I was living I wasn't a follower. I was a fan. I called out to God when I needed something and when I needed my conscience cleansed. I wasn't following him. I wasn't willing to take the heat. For him. See, followers ask, what have I done for you lately? Fans ask, what have you done for me lately? You see that in the story. You see it in verses 41 through 43, where they're complaining. Who is, it? Who is he? See, followers ask, what have I done for you? And fans ask, what have you done for me? And what I think the story teaches ultimately is that fans are in it for the short term and followers are in it for the long term. And that's a tragedy. That's a tragedy. Sal May was a beautiful little five-year-old girl. It was a Red Guard era of 1966. It was an era known as the Cultural Revolution in the People's Republic of China. I want to read you this story. Salome was only five years old, and she lay in a dark, damp cell with her mother. 
and because of her mother. Her mother was in jail because she had protested against the arrest of her bishop. Sal May was in jail because she had nowhere else to go. Over and over again, her mother spoke soothing words to the five-year-old child as they sat in their cell. All the prisoners were disgusted to see the child suffer due to her mother's indiscretion. Even the prison director said to the mother, Don't you have pity on your daughter? Just declare that you give up being a Christian and will not go to church anymore. Then you and your child will be free. In despair, the woman agreed, and she was released. After two weeks, she was forced to shout from a stage before 10,000 people, I am no longer a Christian. On their return home, the child who had stood near her mother when she denied her faith said, Mommy, today Jesus is not satisfied with you. The mother explained, But you wept in prison. I had to see this, out of, I, had to, I had to say this out of love for you. Salome replied, I promise that if we go back to jail again for Jesus, I will not weep. The mother ran to the prison director and told him, You convinced me I should say the wrong things for my daughter's sake, but she has more courage than I. Both went back to prison. But Salome didn't weep. It's a true story. See, every new year, every new day, every new challenge, every new heartache, Followers of Jesus are called to courage. Every challenge of every new year, every new day, every call to heartache, every challenge, every trial, every tribulation, every joy, every success, maybe even especially those, every, every success, followers of Jesus are called to courage. And the fans of Jesus and the followers of Jesus are always and inevitably separated. Even in the midst of struggle, followers are resolved. It was Jonathan Edwards who said this. He said, Resolution one, I will live for God. Resolution two, if no one else does, I still will. Proved it with his life. He was a follower. It was 320 AD and the reign of Roman Emperor Licinius was strong and powerful in the Western world. The Roman governor stood resolutely before the 40 Roman soldiers of what was known as the Thundering Legion. And he said this. He said, I command you to make an offering to the Roman gods. If you will not, you will be stripped of your military status. The 40 soldiers all believed firmly in the Lord Jesus. All 40. They knew that they must not deny him or sacrifice to some other Roman idol or some other Roman god, no matter what the government would do to them. And so Candidus, who, who spoke for the legion, he turned around and he said to them, he said, nothing is dearer or greater honor to us than Christ our God. And the governor then tried other tactics to get them to deny their faith. He denied their money. He denied their imperial honors. And then he threatened them with torments and with torture and with certain racks and, and with fire. And Candidus turned around and replied, he said, you offer us money that remains behind and glory that fades away. You seek to make us friends of the emperor, but alienate us from the true king. We desire one gift, the crown of righteousness. We love honors, but those of heaven. And he went on and he said, You threaten fearful torments and call our godlessness, our godliness a crime, but you will not find us faint-hearted or attached to this life or easily stricken with terror. For the love of God, we are prepared to endure any kind of torture. So the government, governor was hacked off. 
and he wanted them to die a slow, painful death. So he stripped them naked, herded them in the middle of a frozen lake, and set soldiers to guard them for preventing anyone to escape as they were naked in this frozen lake. The 40 encouraged each other as though they were going into battle. It is reported that Camdenus would shout up and say, How many of our companions in arms fell on the battlefront showing themselves loyal to an earthly king? Is it possible then for us to fail to sacrifice our lives in faithfulness to the true king? Let us not turn aside, O warriors. Let us not turn our backs in flight from the devil. They spent the night courageously bearing their pain and rejoicing in the hope that they would soon be with the Lord because it was inevitable at this point. To increase the torment of the Christians, the, the governor set up baths of hot water and put them around the lake to tempt them just to give up on their faith and to come out. And the governor hoped to weaken the firm resolve of these freezing men. And he told them this. He said, he said you may come ashore when you're ready to deny your faith. In the end, one did weaken. One of the 40 left and got into the warm bath. But when one of the guards on the shore saw him desert... He himself took the place of the traitor. Surprising everyone, he stripped himself of his clothes and he ran and joined the Nekabuans in the ice and he cried out this. This is all he said. He said, I am a Christian. See, the truth of the story in John 6 is if you say or I say that we are Christians, then we are called to live like it. Then we're called to resolve to not just get close enough to Jesus for the benefits, but we get those too. But we move into the life of Jesus even when it calls us sacrifice. Because when people call themselves a Christian, it is saying, not what American culture says, where we have all these people who say they're Christians and clearly lives look anti-Christian. But we look like we're Christians. We love the unlovable. We love our neighbors even when it's hard. We love our enemy even when it's hard. We tell the truth even when it costs us our own pride and ego. We say I'm sorry because we are. We repent because we know we did wrong. We give because we know that's what God would do and he will give back. We serve and we, we give up time because we know that Jesus gave up his life. Because we know that Jesus exchanged his righteousness for our sin. We know that he gave us his death for our life. See, this changes everything about us if we call ourselves a Christian, if we are a follower. But the reality of it is, in our culture, is there are many fans who call themselves Christians. You may think that I'm preaching a hard sermon. And I am. It's not easy for me either. It's a heart check. It's a gut check. It's a gut check with how I love Allison, how I love Ian, how I love you, how I love my neighbors. There's no doubt. There's no doubt that it is hard to love your enemies. We want to blow them up. There is no doubt that it is hard to love your neighbor who doesn't look like you, talk like you, act like you, smell like you, isn't from the same place as you. There's no doubt that for some of us that is hard, but we love our neighbors because we follow Jesus. 
there's no doubt that it is hard to go into the nasty, dirty trenches of other people's lives who are so messed up, who, who society says aren't worth helping, who people around us say that they are wasting your time, and you may even get cussed out by them. You may even think that it's not even worth it, but we do it because we're followers of Jesus. Because we understand what it is we've been given in Jesus. I know what my wife has been given in Jesus. I know what my son can be given in Jesus. Why would I not give him everything? That separates the fans from the followers. If you're looking for works, if you're looking for something to do with this sermon, there's a lot of practical ways you can go about it, I suppose. You can choose three people that are hard to love and resolve to love them this year. No matter how mean and hard and ugly it gets. Somebody in this church did that several years ago, told me this story, and those three people became some of the closest people they've ever known. But Jesus said this. If you really want to perform the works of God, man, then just do this. Verse 29. Believe him. See, believing is too hard. It's hard to believe when everything else has fallen apart. It's hard to trust him when everything else seems as though he's not real. It's harder, C.S. Lewis, who is an atheist, who was trying to set out to prove that God didn't exist, discovered that it was harder to, to prove that he didn't exist than it was to even prove that he does exist. And he was an incredibly intelligent man. From Cambridge, a whole nine yards, beautifully intelligent man. But he found that believing in and of itself was easier than not believing. But what he still discovered, that when his wife, who wasn't his wife for too long, died of cancer, that it was very, very hard to still believe and trust. But he stayed with the course because he was a follower of Jesus. And it cost him a lot. See, fans believe in Jesus. I believe Jesus exists. He died for my sins. Followers actually believe him when he says, I'm the bread of life, and if you feast from me, you live. Okay, that's going to cost me something. He who puts his hands on the plow is not worthy of the kingdom of God if he looks back. Okay, I'm looking forward. My question to you, my question to me, do you believe in Jesus? Or do you believe him? And what he says is true about life and faith even if it costs you something, even if your politics say otherwise, even if your family says otherwise, even if you get a scathing letter from a relative that says, you're a fool. Do you believe him? Because here's what I know. If you do, Jesus made a promise. You will know and you will experience life, true life. And John would put it this way, and I close with this text. In 1 John, he would remind us of this. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous one, he himself is the substitutionary sacrifice, the propitiation for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the whole world. And this is how we're sure that we've come to know him. Not through mere confession, and not through church attendance, but by keeping his commands. The one who says, I've come to know him, yet doesn't keep his commands as a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly in him the love of God is perfected. This is how we know we are in him. The one who says he remains in him should walk just as 
he walks, the one who says that he is Christ's child or she is Christ's child should follow him. And John says something very beautiful in this. He says the people who follow Jesus, love is perfected in him. And here's why. You can't walk with Jesus and really follow Jesus and him not begin to radically change your heart and your mind and your life. You can't walk with Jesus and see Jesus for who Jesus really is and him not eventually become your joy. Not for you to, to finally realize that you have in Jesus the greatest gift in the world and there's nothing better that the world could offer because in Jesus, you have God. You have the creator of heaven and earth inside of you and loving you and caring for you and guiding you and leading you and yes, convicting you and yes, calling you to hard places but watching over you and caring for you and even if this life asks you to step naked in a freezing pond, you know that when this body gives up, you know where you're going to be. Why? Because of Jesus. There's nothing better than Jesus. And if we could only, if we could only really believe that, our marriages would be different. Our lives would be different. The city would be different. The world would be different. And it can be. So decide this year, January 1, 2012. Resolve. Don't make it about a bunch of lose weight resolutions. I need to do that. That's why I'm wearing a coat. Resolve that your resolutions are going to be more about the promises of God and less about your promises to Him. Resolve to follow Jesus. Trust Him. If you can trust Him with your soul, you can trust Him with your life. He's trustworthy. Let's pray.